You see, it was spring in Venice. I was so young, I didn't know what I was doing. We're all like that on my father's side. By the way, how is your father's side? Oh, it's much better, thanks. And yours? Hi, everybody, and welcome again to the IWMP podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and we've watched another movie. Well, we watched a couple movies this time. We did. We did. I think we're going to focus on one of them, but we have to acknowledge the fact that they're part of a long series of which we we have now watched about half. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we've, we've watched halfway through this series, and it's hard to separate these in my mind, but... I, I can. De- we're definitely talking about the first one in, in a major way. I think. I think so, and I guess you can sort of call this Christmas in July. It's technically a Christmas movie. That I, first one. Yeah, it is. That takes place like right around Christmas time. Yeah. That's part of the story, in fact. Yep. So, I add some sleigh bell sound effects here. I guess you know, happy holidays, people. <laughs> sleigh bells, a martini shaker. Oh, absolutely. You're all set. We are talking about. The Thin Man. Yes. 1934, starring William Powell and Myrna Loy. My goodness, this movie has style. Just, like, it's got, a, it's got a tone to it. It's one of those movies where if you've seen it, you immediately, like, it's got a, a rhythm to the entire thing. It's exciting to me that we get to discuss this. And it's tempting to say this movie is all about style. It and is. And yet... That would be selling it short because there still is so much more to it. I mean, it's a mystery by Dashiell Hammett. There is really a a well-crafted, clever mystery behind it all. It's a dark mystery. It, there is. It, it is very uh, dark when you really get down to it. It sometimes can be hard to recognize that because of all the style that's uh, that's floating on the surface. But yeah, it's it's a dark story, lots of interesting characters. Just the fact that this gives us Nick and Nora Charles. My goodness, that is a pair. Th- these two characters are icons. I mean, the the movie it's the first movie itself, The Thin Man is in fact in the Library of Congress, I believe 1997 was put in as uh, historically and culturally relevant, and that's just like this this is a movie that is this been recognized because it does bring a lot to the table yeah it's the national film registry Re- national film. recognizes okay, recognizes films of specific or particular uh, cultural and historical importance and yeah the, the thin the thin man uh is is on that list mm-hmm. well deserved too well deserved it is a slice of a time period and it's just an entire vibe going on and it is an example of a particular type of movie making that is an artifact of its time. I mean, this technically was considered a B-movie. It was relatively inexpensive to make. It was a kind of a straightforward uh, shoot, uh, limited running time, and it was, it was going to be the, you know, the second feature on a double feature. That's what B-movies were. And yet it exploded in popularity. It so outstripped other movies of its time. It led to Oscar nominations, uh, and it led to five more movies in the same series, and it really did kind of break the mold of what that B-mystery movie could be. Mm-hmm. Well, the director, I, I was actually looking him up, W.S. Van Dyke, was known for making films uh, in short amounts of time under budget. That was what he was known for. 
And he turned around a film where the book came out in December. And it was originally published in December. It came out as its own standalone book in January. Yes. And they had a movie out by May of the same year. Now, it must have, they must have made that movie deal well before, certainly before the book was published, probably before the, uh, the novel was, began its serialization, which were most of, as most of Dashiell Hammett's movies did. And Dashiell Hammett was already sufficiently well-known that I don't think he would have any problem selling movie rights to a new novel with new characters. But even so, that, you're right, they, they made movies quick, in those days, and that was the job of somebody who who was kind of a, a working B movie director, and he certainly uh, pulled that off with this. Absolutely, and the fact that it was—I mean, still a lot of production must have happened in that short time between <laughs> book came out and the rest of it, and it actually hitting theaters. But also the fact that this movie came out ten months, ten months after the end of Prohibition. <laughs> this film actually is less than a year after the end of Prohibition, and this story is the biggest thing on film. And if you know anything about this story and anything about Nick and Nora Charles, that's an amazing thing, and kind of part of the fun of them in the weird way, because my goodness, these two can drink. And that is one of their their go-to comedy bits to leaven this otherwise very dark and serious tone. Yeah, I've got my, my notes here that you know, things I want to make sure that we talk about. There's Cast, story, style, dialogue, the series it, it started. One of the topics in big capital letters is drink. Oh, yes. There is a lot of drinking in this, uh, in this movie. It, Nick Charles and arguably both Nick and Nora Charles. You know, Nick Charles is a f high-functioning alcoholic. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just clinically, uh, definitionally, he is drinking all the time. Every time. He is a good detective. He is smart. He is quick. He can deal with people. He can deal with tense, sometimes violent situations. But he is always in the bag. There is some weird connection in my mind between, like, Nick Charles and a drunken master stereotype. Of, like, <laughs> it, but instead of, like, kung fu, it's crime scene investigation. Like, I almost oh. get the feeling like a sober Nick Charles might not be as effective at times. I think you're absolutely right. And that's, again, again, part of that definition. He, mm -hmm. he, he at this point, probably needs that alcohol to function. Absolutely. And fortunately, he has the kind of lifestyle and the kind of money uh, and the kind of occupation, such as it is, that um, he's able to pursue that. Let's put oh, it that way. He doesn't even have the money. Nora has the money. <laughs> yes. Every time we run into a contact, it's for the for the pair of them. If they're high society, it's Nora's family. And if it's like the pickpockets and the the criminals, it's usually a bunch of people Nick put away who are just so impressed by him, they became buddies once their uh, once their uh, sentence was up. And that's one of the fun parts of this movie is the fact that you've got these two characters they are from different worlds. She is a, a, a mining and lumber and railroad heiress. He is a, a detective. He was a detective with the, uh, a nationwide detective agency, very good at his job. They're from different worlds, and yet they are perfect together. They have found one another. They are Everybody's sees them as the ideal couple, and, and they're not wrong. And yet... It's those contrasts in terms of what worlds they came from, what worlds they have contacts in, that make it funny 
and the fact that the characters recognize the fact that that's funny is part of what makes it work. There's an entire scene where uh, they've got a house guest using their telephone on a very serious call. And in the, in not the, even the background, but on the other half of this same shot, the two of them are there literally elbowing each other and making little like flinch gestures <laughs> to see if they can get the other one in a way that feels like something out of a modern rom-com <laughs> of like, you know, that couple that is just perfect for each other. There's them in the background. But no, they're the, they're our main characters, and the the telephone call you're also half paying attention to is the other string of narrative, and that's something we really you mentioned rom coms. I don't know that we ever in any of the movies learn very much about how they met and under what circumstances. We get a little bit of that information in the novel, The Thin Man, but. A, on the one hand, that would be an interesting story. On the other hand, I kind of like the fact that we get to imagine it, and we get to focus on the fact that they are husband and wife and a terrific team. There is something there. Like, is is the journey as interesting as this destination? Because this destination is a rolling riot of multiple different definitions. <laughs> and they do. He, uh, she does joke about. Um, the kinds of people he knows, and he jokes about having married her for, for her money, but it's obvious the way they act. They're, they're very much in love. Absolutely. The fact that they do joke so freely about that, and everyone else gets nervous when they do, and neither of them flinch, is part of how you can tell that they both understand each other enough to see when a joke is there and, uh, and to love each other. But you, you literally watch like them throw jokes at each other, and everyone else is getting like, really nervous in the room that they're saying that. And the two of them are just like, this is us. And another example of that is the fact that clearly before he met Nora, Nick Charles was very popular with the ladies. And sometimes the people that he knew from back then have stories and will drop names of girls he used to hang out with. And you see Nora in, in some scenes pay attention to that and file that away. And she's not, jealous or upset she just likes to have that ammunition to play jokes on him or to rib him later or pull a trick on him because she happens to know the name of some old girlfriend that he used to have there's plenty of characters who flirt with nora expecting this to not be permanent until it's like that's my wife oh wow <laughs> you kept him down okay and there, there's a subset of those characters then who watch nora keep pace with Nick on something, or even at one time catch something faster than Nick and throw him in a way that makes him smile and makes another character go, oh, that's why. In the background, it's subtle. And I, it's subtle in a way I never expected for a black and white film. They've got some of that, you know, they, they trust their actors. There's a different level. There's some of these films in this era that don't, let an they they they're using a driving plot of a known narrative to keep things going, and the actors are filling roles in that sense. And there's others that let those actors just play with something because they've got the time on film. And this one does that second. You are right. You would especially see that in this you know studio system B movies. They were cranking them out because it was a product, and there was a demand for the product. But what sets this apart is the cast that we've got, especially in those two lead roles, William Powell as Nick Charles, and Myrna Loy as Nora Charles. And at this point, 
it's almost impossible to imagine anyone else in those roles. And yeah, Mrs. Darling Wife suggested that, you know, William Powell had already been playing Philo Vance in a, a series of movies. And again, he was he was in that in those like a financier and um, uh, amateur sleuth. And we watched some of those. They're kind of fun, too. But he was popular enough and well-known enough, and also specifically in this kind of sleuth role. Maybe Dashiell Hammett had William Powell in mind when he was writing Nick Charles. It, I don't think that's um, uh, out of the question at all. Oh, that's... I, I, he I is feel so well-suited to this character. It is so well-suited, and it is very much more so than the other characters he played of that type. More so than Philo Vance and such. It lets him have a bit of fun with it. It gives him an opportunity to have that lighter side, both as a character and as an actor, to play that. And that's something you see in current films with actors who are known for one type of role taking a a uh, a, a movie or a film or TV show even that allows them to play a slightly different type of character or something either on the far end opposite or... The character you know me for, but with enough of a heavy twist of this other style that I can prove my range includes this. And there's a little bit of that going on here, where he, he is there able to play this dark, serious detective character, play these heavier t stories, and keep that up when it goes that way in The Thin Man. But he can also have that fun in these lighter moments and keep that balance, and he gets to show that off as his, his talent as an actor. Yeah, there's there's the in addition to the fact that he's always looking for a drink or, or or always within reach of a drink, there is the fact that Nick Charles is retired from detecting. He, he when his father-in-law passed away and left a fortune to Nora, Nick quit the detective agency so he could in theory work full-time managing her assets. I don't know that uh, uh he actually does much work on that. He's not even sure what all she owns. But he's kind of running from the job that he is best at. And every once in a while, there's a scene in which you get the sense that there is a reason for that. That there is a reason for wanting to have this happy-go-lucky, always drinking, not thinking about serious things like crime lifestyle. And yet, he's pulled back into it by various circumstances and by the fact that the detective is kind of the person that Nora fell in love with. And while she loves Nick Charles, she likes to see him work at what he is so good at. In in some ways, he does. He is happy to ignore it, but he's also happy when he's in the job. He has a skill there, and we see a sense of pride, especially when he's doing that confrontation at the end and, and everything. He, in, he has pride in his ability there and he is happy doing so once he gets into it and it's watching him be and love everything about nora but getting a little actually annoyed that's the one thing that actually annoys him is her pushing him on that but she kind of knows he's happy doing the job in that sense right and yeah. it's she she loves seeing it she gets upset when she's excluded from it because she likes that danger and adventure there is something very much I've lived in high society, and here you are to sweep me off into this world of drama and intrigue. But also, she knows that anything else is just a substitute for the excitement he has of having cracked a case. And those, there's so many of these great conversations between Nick and Nora, and, and those are where you get 
the sense of why they're together. And it's because she can hold her own. She is smart. She is brave. And I kind of get the impression that, yeah, he knew a lot of girls way back when, and none of them kept his interest because they weren't they weren't challenging to him and they weren't as smart as Nora, to put it mm-hmm. put it simply. And that also brings up the other part of the casting that makes this work, and that is Myrna Loy playing uh Nora Charles. Now okay. this was kind of her breakout role, and she was a good bit younger than than William Powell, but just as Nora and Nick work together because they're at that same level in terms of how quick they are and and how capable they are. Myrna Loy, they, in, in Myrna Loy, the casting director for these movies found someone who could hold her own with William Powell in these scenes and make it absolutely believable that these people belong together and these people are of a similar type and uh, of a similar capability. It's amazing. Usually films of this time would not give her role as much agency within the room as it does, but it gives her that respect and agency. And I'm I'm very happy with that. It might it would be different in a newer version or a different time version in terms of how they wanted to show her. Giving her that much in some people's faces as they give her in this movie is not what you usually see during this time period. And that is so much fun. I I love it when those sort of characters can have that punch to them. And she's got plenty of it. In fact, some of her like setup and scenarios it's like it's like there's more long-term planning in her cleverness than you ever see in nick's nick's clever on the spot and quick on the spot but dang she can plan a long con or a long game on something (laughs) yes especially on him because she knows him so well absolutely she can not just kind of pester him into taking a case but knows exactly what to say to get him thinking about the case such that he then won't be able to leave it alone. We watch her like perfectly socially manipulate him through an entire scene where he winds up almost explaining away an answer to a case. Oh, that might be in the second film, I think. But there's like, it's like she gets him talking and he has to halt himself because he realizes, oh my goodness, this entire conversation for the last like 10 minutes has been about you getting me on this yeah. track. <laughs> you almost got me. You al- of course she does, ultimately. She always does. Because she knows it's he's thinking about it no matter what. It's just getting him to put to take it out, out of the head and, out, and send it out the mouth. And, um, and there's a lot of great dialogue in this movie, or all these uh, these movies, but it's worth mentioning just the some of the silent acting they do with expressions. Another thing that makes it portrays them on screen as a couple who's so in sync is the fact that they can communicate just with expressions across the room and they understand one another. And Myrna Loy, I think in particular, is so good at conveying so much of what her character is thinking in in a an expression or or just the way she's looking at something. She can combine in one look I am very bored. I am really irritated that Nick is so obsessed with his Christmas present. I am delighted that Nick is enjoying his Christmas present so much. All of this in one expression. I I am dryly pointing out that all of the fancy Christmas presents that he's now noticing I'm I've got are 
gotten for me by him because he didn't think to get them. And I will point that out in a, <laughs> in a way that is simultaneously chastising and teasing. Yes. And also grateful because she gets to say that he got them for her and that is part of the entire point and that is fun. <laughs> there is actually, this is where I'm, I might, if there are fans out there of this movie who I know that there are fans of the Thin Man in general, but there are, if there are active fan bases out there, I feel I might step on someone's toes saying this. There is one actor in this entire movie, though, that does not play right for me. Who's that? Asta. Doesn't play right? I don't know. There's something about Asta. Maybe it's just the way they're filming this dog, because this is this is their dog. This is the the third character, the silent third character, that each of them can bounce a, a comment off of or a scene off of if they don't want a another actor responding in the same way. And so I can almost feel the hand of the animal trainer on the other side. There's just a delay. There's something in there. And it, it just doesn't play. Right. And that's unfortunate because Asta is such a fun character and such a, an important character actually to the way the dynamic between the two of them play at times. So the fact that it never lands for me in any of the films I've seen is a little disappointing to me, but it's just how it is. Oh, now I think Asta works very well in the first movie. He's just involved enough. He is an excuse to get certain bits of action going. He is something that adds something to their relationship. So it's not just this insular, these are two people in their own world. They do have someone else they can relate to in the form of this this dog. Someone else they're responsible for, to the extent that they're responsible people in any way. But I do think that he's used more in later movies, and it's to greater comic effect. And while some of those land and some of those don't, they're they're increasingly out of place. But when he's used sparingly, like he is in the first movie, I think Asta is terrific, and and I think is it works well. The one thing I can never tell is was Asta her dog. His dog or always their dog? I have no idea. That's a good question. Because Asta is impl- implied to be a well, a well-established member of their little group, and there's even a Mrs. Asta back at home with another dog, another right. dog they've got. So I just don't know how that's aligned. He could have been a wedding present. I don't know. Could have been a clue in an early investigation. <laughs> we don't know. Yeah. And uh, and you mentioned back home, that kind of brings up where they are and what the situation is. And this being a mystery, and there being so much else to talk about, I don't think we're going to go into the plot of this movie in great detail. Probably not. Yeah. But I do think that it's worth setting up so you get a sense of how the what we've already talked about in terms of the characters and their backgrounds and how those play into the plots. In the first movie, in The Thin Man, it's established that Nick Charles used to work in New York. But now he and Nora live in California, where I gather most of her family and financial interests are. And they're just in New York now for a couple of weeks around the holidays. And the mystery they get involved in is tangentially related to some work that Nick did in the past, in that someone who he worked with uh, in the the past, uh, somebody who was a client of Nick's, Uh, has gone missing. And his daughter is wondering where he is. His ex-wife is wondering where he is. His lawyer is trying to find him, but can't. 
And it all, the story all revolves around where is this inventor, Winant, and uh, and what's happened to him. And that actually works very well as an initial setup plot because it gives us this higher society influence family with this missing person that brings Nora's side into this because she's got some connections and knows some of these people from that side. But also Nick worked on this. So both of them have a connection to this family, I thought. I don't know if in the second movie, it's almost all driven by Nora's family and society connections. I don't know that she knew anybody involved in the original Thin Man mystery, since they're all New Yorkers and okay, had to I, be introduced to them. I thought some of a- them are much more of at her level of society, yeah. but I don't know that she knew them prior to this. Okay, I thought that okay, but it's still this like one level, but it's a lot of people being investigated that are in another set, which are which is that much more like underground oh i know a guy who do who take someone out kind of thing and that's the question and there's a bit of that like i'll question my side and you'll work with your side to their to their influence there and that works out for that and that is what get, brings you to one of the things that this kind of of mystery and the kind of novel and the tradition that this comes from often talks about and it's those the conflict that naturally arises when you have this intersection between what are usually different parts of society. You've got people whose wealth and position or appearance of wealth and position tend to insulate them from certain things that those without money or those who have chosen or been drawn into a life of crime uh, uh, have to deal with. And you see these different worlds colliding. And we definitely see that in The Thin Man in terms of what drives this mystery. And... There is a lot of uh, one of my favorite bits in this entire movie that almost quintessentially shows some of that is the party scene in this first movie, because you get uh, some of the the higher society people arriving, but you also get a bunch of people of all the different levels all arriving at their house, mostly to question if Nick is on the case and being dragged into this holiday party. (laughs) And it turns into this melting pot of people from all these different levels. Just actually, you know, they've got plenty of it on hand. So they're all everyone is plastered by the end <laughs> and, and singing all of their Christmas carols off key. And the in the presence of Nick and Nora, things get done and the barriers dissolve. They they represent the ability to break down those barriers. And then they do so through, through the way they live their lives, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is plenty of social lubricant is the way they live their lives. But that's. What helps? <laughs> and that scene that you bring up, it's so great that you brought that up because it is, it illustrates what's so effective about this kind of filmmaking. Here we've got this long scene. If you want to call it one scene, you might be able to break it up, but it's it's in one set, four rooms. It goes on and it's Filled, you know, it's crammed with both the, the principal actors as they come in, but also these bunch of background actors and supporting actors. And so much happens in these four rooms, you know, a, a main room, a kitchen, a bedroom, and a bathroom. Between the dialogue and the interactions of, of these people and the 
I the, the the working class people that Nick knows observing and commenting with, about what's going on with these wealthier people coming in because they need to talk to Nick about something urgently. So much happens both in terms of the style of the movie and driving the plot forward. Oh, yeah. In that small space, in that one extended scene. More of the actual, like, setup. If you're taking notes alongside this to try to figure out the mystery, more of your notebook will be filled during that bit than during various other sections of the movie combined. And that's just because there's this information density that is so smooth, both visually and, and narratively, and I love it. And at the same time, they're throwing in lots of jokes. Oh my goodness. It's a fun scene because there are so many different kinds of characters who can be there just to set up a particular joke or just to set up something for Nick or Nora to react to. And and that's another thing that just makes that scene so rich. It's uh, it's and just fun to watch. You've got like two reporters and a is it a psychiatrist and a, a policeman all in the room and here comes this like well-known pickpocket and it's like he he brings him in, tells him to put down his coat, brings him on over, hands him a hands him a drink, says, Everybody, meet Eddie. Now you gotta learn all their names. And he keeps going. And it's like, <laughs> I've just distracted all of these people who are desperate to know what's going on. Just with social interaction for a while while I go do stuff I have to. And in addition to the the fact that there are, are criminals here at the party, there are also police officers here at the party, because that's another kind of person that Nick knows. Working cops. Yeah. And and there's also like, I gotta say the, the police in this are depicted interestingly because individual members are people who understand Nick and work with him. But there's also plenty of them that are harsh and interfering and they are, they are a a thing that that this will all be brought to by the end, but they are not the effective method. And they, they it, it's shown as they kind of stumble their way through that they cannot navigate everything going on the way Nick and Nora can. And I kind of get the impression that for the most part, that may be one of the reasons why Nick is happy to leave that whole world alone in that. Yeah, he doesn't want to get in the way of the police's job, but he really doesn't want to be part of that anymore. Mm-hmm. And we never I don't know if we ever learn about any of Nick's like law enforcement background, like most private investigators have. Uh, or if he just had some other background, went right into to the, the private detective work. But, you know, he gets along well enough with certain, as you say, individual police officers. Doesn't seem to have a lot of interest in police as an institution. The, the, the Some of these officers have an angry respect for him. This, like, I want to be mad at you, but your record of solving these cases that we couldn't means I, I can't touch you, and that makes them more angry. And that's a weird thing and an interesting thing in this, because it, it's this, I don't, I, they are antagonistic at times, but they are also one of the parties that is wrapped up and is a leverage piece in how Nick gets things actually completed. And that's what makes uh, Lieutenant Guild, the detective played by Nat Pendleton in the first movie and again in the third movie. An interesting character and kind of a standout. He's the, the the police officer that Nick deals with most, especially in that uh, first movie. And he is someone who is not above leaning on somebody and using the 
implied authority and freedom to do violence to to do get uh, the results that he wants and yet knows that he is not as good at this as Nick Charles is and offers concessions to Nick Charles in exchange for getting Nick Charles to as he puts it you know work on the same side instead of against one another he 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 admittedly gets uh denser as a man in later movies that he shows up in but there is something very uh uh, serious detective story version of Kronk that I get from him. <laughs> Maybe it's just also the jaw squareness, but there's something of that same like sheer ah about what I'm doing in a point you in a direction, even if it's not the right one kind of way. And that color colors how the entire force is shown in this. If they are this blunt instrument being pointed in a direction at times. Oh, well, I don't know. That's, I think that's a little bit harsh on, okay. on Lieutenant Guild. I mean, he, on the one hand, he knows when it might be useful to threaten somebody with a Sullivan Act violation for for having a handgun, and uh, on the other hand, he knows when it, that's what not what's important, and he will uh, choose to ignore that in the interest of talking about what's really important. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he he understands that there's a certain give and take and a certain subtlety needed for his uh, for for his role as a police detective but he is um you never get the impression that he would be able to handle a case like this on his own yeah and the the fact that he kind of knows that is something of a redeeming quality it is and uh, the you the rest of the cast i don't know that there are any particular standouts a lot of you know typical b movie casting they cast these very quickly they had certain types out there we need the the rich divorcee. We need the creepy son who's studying abnormal psychology. Oh, he is extremely oh, yeah. creepy. Let's back Gilbert. Uh, yeah, uh, I part of part of what I studied in college was psychology, and this guy made me cringe yeah. because he is taking things. These he's like he's like the worst parts of Twitter. Pulling things out of context. It's like, no, no, I've got textbooks that talk about what you're describing. Will you please read the rest of the chapter before you open your mouth? You absolute fool. Why? Could I come down and see the body? I've never seen a dead body. Why do you want to? Well, I've been studying psychopathic criminology and I have a theory. Perhaps this was the work of a sadist or a paranoiac. If I saw it, I might be able to tell. There's the ingenue who kind of gets Nick involved in this because it's her father who's disappeared. Mm -hmm. He's... sister to the 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 weird student of psychology guy they're all very good in these roles there's one supporting actor who i think we need to acknowledge oh my goodness we do because he's back again i thought we were i thought we were done with him we just finished this up but no he's back again yes he is aj arno aj arno's back (laughs) caesar romero is in this movie early role for caesar romero he plays the person of questionable integrity to whom the ex-wife of the missing guy has now gotten married yeah not a not much of a role but it was kind of fun to have finished the whole um medfield college series and then for ian and i to start watching this and be reminded oh it's caesar romero it's it's AJ Arno the early years. E- even back then, though, he is a man who can just pull attention in a scene because he he gets some of the most overdramatic lines in the entire movie, <laughs> yeah. and he plays them with such absolute authority that it doesn't seem out of character. 
character or out of place in this because it's just oh that's him that's this guy he he can say things with this much bravado and that's just not breaking the fourth wall at all in this world because (laughs) he can stay in the world and stay stuff like that now we're not going to talk too much about the plot of this movie but I do want to acknowledge something they do with a the classic mystery trope, where at the end, when the detective has solved the case, he brings everybody together and explains what happened so he can name the, the murderer. Nick Charles does that, even though he's not really sure who done it when he sets all of this up. He knows enough. That if he knows that if he gets all these people together and sees them reacting to one another, and he says enough of what he does know in the right ways to push the right buttons, he's going to get a reaction from someone that will confirm who's actually guilty. But it it shows that kind of both casual approach to life and confidence for him to to set things up that way. And I think that's a great kind of subversion of the... I have figured it out. I know everything because I'm the brilliant detective, and now I'm just going to gather you all here to explain to you how brilliant I am. There's a lot of Nick and Nora that are trope savvy in that sense. (laughs) They understand people well enough to understand archetypes of people to understand interactions between archetypes, which means they can see some of the plot points coming, and that is part of what is fun. It's never in a Deadpool-y breaking the narrative way it's in a no 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 i know people and you're the right kind of idiot to do this or you're just smart enough to think the wrong thing and that's that's a level of clever and that's fun to see because both of them are on that level and both of them can play off of each other because they're the two smartest people in the room about that topic They never do it, but I would not be surprised to watch Nick or Nora or both of them do the mouthing a conversation two other characters are having thing because they know how this will play out. And that's a that's a style I think every people can understand of the like you put these two people in the room, this will happen. And so we just gotta put these two people in a room. And there are a number of references to the the idea of the detective. In The Thin Man, and especially I'm talking about this first movie. And also some references to detective stories when when Nora is really, really eager for, for Nick to take this case so she can watch him work. He says, oh, I'm gonna, tomorrow I'm going to buy you a whole stack of detective stories. I wonder to what extent this is Dashiell Hammett commenting on the detective story and the tropes of the detective story through Nick and Nora. Because this was his last novel. He had already written... Uh, some of the novels that he's really famous for, all the Continental Op stories and uh, the Maltese Falcon, and was synonymous with a certain kind of detective story. I think this might be his way of, of, with a new set of characters, backing up and commenting about that. Oh, absolutely. And he wrote the script, or was at least part of the writing team for the script, of the later movies. Yeah, he gets some story credit on some of them. And those ones have some of that same sort of commentary on different parts of this larger thing. So he is definitely, I think, stepping back and making a comment about this genre he was part of as a whole towards the end, or at least a transition point in his career. It's just oozing with 
a respect that you know this type of story. You can go into it never having seen a mystery story in your life and still follow it and enjoy. But it will actually reward mystery fans as well because it's acknowledging parts of it that usually don't get acknowledged. And it's a, it's a, there's a lot of stories out there. I'm backing myself up here. There's a lot of stories out there where a story of X type exists in a world where X is not a genre anyone else knows. You don't see a lot of horror films where the other act, the other characters have watched a bunch of horror and know not to do some things. Right. And there is something about a story where the genre it is part of is part of its own world. And this is definitely a mystery story where mystery stories are part of its world. That's a great point. Anytime you do get, say, a horror movie that is aware of horror movies, it's in a very, very arch and self-aware way. And it's it's hits you over the head with the fact that the characters know about horror movies because this horror movie is a commentary about horror movies. That might be happening about mysteries in The Thin Man, but it's not that obvious. It's not that uh, it, it doesn't overwhelm the fact that this is on its own a good detective story. Mm-hmm. It is. It is more properly set in present day for when it was shown on film because it is more accurate to present day and the things of present day because it includes itself in that in that weird sense without being self commentary. It's self-acknowledging right and having mentioned the novel i just wanted to uh uh bring up the fact that i've I've been rereading the novel the thin man since we watched this i'm gonna actually do a, a patreon special about that just some some thoughts about the novel coming back to it and rereading it but um that also reminds me of how i came to this movie initially and why this made an impression on me when i was a kid this is one of those movies that i watched because my dad liked it and it was on TV one point in, in time, and he put it on. And William Powell, especially William Powell in a role like um, Nick Charles, definitely my dad's kind of thing. In the same way that James, James Garner as Jim Rockford was my dad's kind of thing. And you can definitely see a certain resonance with that sort of character. But watching The Thin Man with my dad and then watching some of The Thin Man sequels, that led me to reading the book which led me to reading other Dashiell Hammett stuff like those Continental Op stories and others, which led me to other movies related to this, like The Maltese Falcon. Also read me, uh, led me to read start reading Raymond Chandler and the Philip Marlowe stories. So this movie, The Thin Man, really got me into my favorite kind of mystery more so than anything else did. If I had to come back to, yeah, what was the start? It was probably watching The Thin Man with my dad, which led me to the books, which led me to other movies and kind of spun that all out. I love that. Because honestly, for this movie, I, I'm, I remember it because it's a movie I watched with you. Because you told me about, there were references in pop culture that I was starting to be aware of, but not knowing this root of. and. You pointed me to this movie, and you and you and mom pointed out that I've got to see this. And I remember sitting down to watch the first time. I think we were like really excited that we caught it on uh, one of the movie rerun channels, like an AM or a TM, 
See, it was one of those. But yeah, we, and they did a marathon on New Year's. Yes, yes. <laughs> so we spent all New Year's watching all six Thin Man movies, and this was some years ago. And we watched all of these, and honestly, that was right around the time, because that was like, was that right at the end of middle school for me? Right beginning of high school? Might have been. Because it was around the same time that it was a bunch of, it was the, the Thin Man sextology, all six films, I think we watched most of them. And like a bunch of Cary Grant films. And to say that that changed how I approached me in <laughs> high school and it was is it, putting it lightly because the idea of this, I'm aware of what's around me and I make these little quippy comments became part of what I tried to emulate. And I found my own style of that. I became this guy who would make these comments that would <laughs> make everyone else in the conversation pause. And it's because I was emulating these movies I watched, but I <laughs> loved it. And it, I, it, it still resonates with me. But it's all based on you telling me about this thing you liked and me having to see it. It's, it's almost a prototype of this podcast well, now. That's where this all came from. Where right? all this came from. Because, and I still remember, I still like going back to it now because of that. So it, it is just something fun of the, knowing the fact that it has that same sort of importance to you because of you sharing it with your dad because it has importance to me because of me sharing it with you so thank you well i'm glad that they made an impression on you uh i'm glad that we're getting a chance to watch them again we've watched three of them i'm sure we're going to watch the rest of them soon i have a feeling that there might be a a we kept watching episode mm -hmm. in the not too distant future about the other thin man movies and we've talked mostly about the first one but the second and third are kind of the Thin Man again. Yeah. Oh, and it's... Oh, it's, oh, oh it's, my goodness. We haven't even talked about the nomenclature problem. Yes, it's time for my pet peeve, uh, my, my language pet peeve for the episode. Uh, in past episodes, you might have remembered me rambling about what is a record versus an album versus an LP. Here we're going to talk about The Thin Man. The Thin Man does not refer to Nick Charles. The Thin Man in the original story refers to another character... And the fact that he's thin is significant as a plot point and a clue. That's all I'm going to say about that. Now, the second movie is after The Thin Man, which makes sense. It, it picks up right where the first movie ends. They finish what they're doing in New York City, and they're taking a train to, back to California. The second movie starts as they arrive in California. My goodness, and that train took two years of production time. <laughs> And uh, and it's what happens next, and they get involved in another mystery, and this one concerns uh, Nora's family and such. And then there is the third movie that brings them back to New York, and that's called Another Thin Man. And yeah, okay, that one, it, it's also ostensibly not referring to Nick Charles. After that, they really kind of lose the thread, and they start titling the movies as if the thin man refers to Nick. It doesn't. It doesn't. The fact that he is this tall, thinner actor is detrimental in this weird way. He plays the role brilliantly, but it means that everyone thinks that William Powell is... Uh, and, and therefore, Nick Charles is this the thin man in the title, and it's not. It, 
I, it bugs me too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, later on we get the Thin Man Goes Home, Song of the Thin Man. It's, uh, it's, it is, um, I can understand, of course, they've got to put Thin Man in the title. They want people to come see the movie and they want people to know, oh, this is the next William Powell, Nick Charles movie. But it's still, it's still annoying. It's not a Marvel movie. They don't title it based on the main character. <laughs> well, I think that might bring us to our, our final questions. I think it does. I, I don't think that anybody's going to be surprised, given the way we've been talking about these movies. I don't think anyone's going to be surprised either. But to put it on the record, screen or no screen, The Thin Man. Screen it. Absolutely screen it. <laughs> this is, this is a, a movie where... Even if mysteries aren't your thing, even if black and white films are not your thing, I think it's good to see this just because it is a an excellent example of what it is, and because it is culturally significant in terms of time period, in terms of depiction, in terms of style, that it is good for context just as a a reference to be able to understand later media. There are comments and quotes and style choices elsewhere that are referring back to this. And yeah. it's good to have this in your repertoire. It's got the good mystery story. It's got the terrific performances. It's got the quick, snappy, funny dialogue. It's got the interesting stylistic filmmaking. You're going to find something in this movie to enjoy. And you're probably going to find you're you're enjoying things you didn't expect to so absolutely screen this movie and i'm pretty confident that anybody who watches the first movie is going to go on to the others uh, because they're going to want more of these characters just like people did back in the 1930s oh yeah so that brings us to our our second question which is revive reboot or rest in peace oh this one's tricky this movie actually did get a reboot. This movie actually got a reboot as a TV series in 1957 to 59 as a 72-episode production by MGM for NBC, the first TV series ever produced by MGM. This is kind of the limit to the information I've found about this TV series, <laughs> and that probably says something about the show. Haven't watched any episodes, but take that as it is and i believe there were some radio adaptations or radio plays that that featured nick and nora i believe so uh so yeah they were they were happy to capitalize on the popularity of these i would probably put aside very quickly the idea of a revival because again in our nomenclature revival means something that is made in which the original is still canon i mean what would this be like a descendant of the charles yeah i don't really Not the same. need uh you know Nick Charles the third or the you know, the fourth is now a detective or I don't know. No. No, thank you. So really, we're looking at revival or not. No, we're looking at uh, no, 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 a, a re reboot, reboot, or not. reboot or not. We're looking at reboot or not. And I'm going to say, oh, see, part of me really wants to say yes. But the problem is that there's a, a, a very weird way where most of what I could think of for a, a reboot becomes Moonlighting. <laughs> and I wasn't ready for that, but it took me a little while to have this like, wait a minute, he is in touch with this one side of 
of you know society and what's going on and she's in touch with this other side and if you do something that's a like a a how they got together story it just becomes moonlighting at some point and that's great but not what i'm looking for but i actually kind of do want a modern an actual modern version of thin man yeah because i'm looking at it and saying okay she's from california let's move that towards the san francisco tech area Let's make that the source of her family's money. Let's give his uh, detective side a bit of a modern uh, private investigator and a bit of a online investigative journalist side, which gives him some of the connections on this side. Not quite. I don't want to make him that, but make him a guy that those people would hire to look at some stuff or something like that. He would have those kind of contacts, just like he had his various underworld contacts in the original. Absolutely. And you can even, over the course of a movie, imply that a group looking into some tech things that actually didn't incriminate her family, but connected those two at some point in a more recent They Got Together storyline, but not during the movie. But I could see this being fun. The the hardest part of this entire thing is having them drink as much, which I don't think you can do. But yeah, that's a tough one. I that's I, a tough one. But I still think of the idea of Nick and Nora, Nora Charles in a modern day setting being this couple with this lavish apartment that has Nerf guns stashed in every corner of the house, so that in the middle of everything going on, they can pull something and take a pot shot at each other with a foam dart. <laughs> Seems like them. the 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 sort of couple that has like. Their their modern fancy uh, home setup, and they're telling their their smart devices to do these things, but they're also messing with each other using those. There is something about that dynamic that can transfer to nowadays and still work, and I really think that could be compelling in a modern cinema scene. I I agree. I am. I'm not looking for. A reboot of The Thin Man, but I am open to a reboot of The Thin Man. I think that done thoughtfully, I don't know, I don't, I wouldn't want one that was a period piece set in the 1930s. We've got that. You can't improve on it. So don't try. A reboot that is a fresh new take, but is set either right now or in the recent past, if you, you need to do that for some reason. Uh, I I would be open to that, and I'd be interested in seeing what they came up with. Uh, I think you're, of course, you get, the casting is going to be key, uh, and as good as William Powell and Myrna Loy are, I'm I'm not going to say it's impossible to cast anybody in that role. Uh, I think that it would be a challenge, and it would be interesting to see what they came up with. You mentioned the drinking. I think you're right. I don't know that the insane level of drinking that we see uh, in the uh, the Thin Man would fly in uh, 2020. An interesting choice, a bold choice for someone trying to reboot The Thin Man, especially if you're going to set it somewhere like, you know, Northern California, would be, they're not drinking all this much, but they are sparking up every chance they get. Oh, goodness. (laughs) They have great connections for weed, and they are smoking 
Oh, that's an entire, that's an avenue. That's an avenue off, gets their brain working. (laughs) That's an avenue I would have never looked at, (laughs) but I am very intrigued by this idea. (laughs) (laughs) You think about it. It's early 1930s. The world has just come out of prohibition and they're drinking every chance they get. Oh, goodness. That kind of the world, the America has just come out of prohibition and drinking every chance they get. It's nine. It's 2020. Marijuana is becoming legal in more and more places in the United States. Oh, goodness. That's a whole thing. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) it would be innovative. It would be a a way to um, to use it to address the modern world. That kind of fits everything weirder than I was ready. (laughs) Oh, goodness. I was not ready to go down that path, but it works. Okay, then. Well, I can't hang out with them. That's interesting. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I think we're uh, we're a definite screen, and we are open to the idea of a uh, a reboot. I gotta say, once you add that aspect, it feels like a Netflix thing. But I could see that being <laughs> a Netflix movie. Yeah, I could. But yeah, def- definitely. So thank you very much for joining us again. Uh, I certainly enjoy the opportunity to show Ian some of these movies from my youth, and then I enjoy the opportunity to talk with him about it for you. Uh, and, uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more tales for, of, uh, media from the 20th century. In the meantime, Ian, where can people find you? I can be found as item crafting on Twitter and on YouTube and as item crafting live on Twitch. And you can find me on Twitter at by Matthew Porter, or you can find me online at Matthew F And you can find the podcast at I M M project.com, or you can find us at I M M P cast on twitter and uh if you go to that website immproject.com you will find links to our uh, discord to a contact page where you can get in touch with us you'll also find a link to our patreon thank you very much if you're able to support uh, the podcast and help us continue to uh to make these we'd love to hear from you on any of these our discord is all is open to chat our our twitter we'd love to hear what you think of uh this series if there's other movies in this sort of style that you'd like to point out or other things you think are kind of inspired by the thin man you'd like to point <laughs> us towards. Cause that's always fun. Yes. This did have so much influence oh going forward. Uh, not just in references, but also in character types. Mm-hmm. So by all means, yes, let, let us know what you think and please come back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>